you're probably noticing that Rowdy and I have the same height microphone. (laughs) How about this this morning? How wonderful. Outstanding. Wonderful. Yes, indeed. You can remain standing as we read God's word together this morning. You've been so generous in giving to our ministry called The Gift. I wanted to give you just a quick update this morning. Um, We now will be visiting 229 homes in our community on our distribution day, delivering 331 bags of groceries. Your giving has been so faithful, we're down to only needing 1300 more dollars to cover all of this ministry. Isn't that great? That is just a blessing. So join us as we do ministry in our community through the gift. And as we reach out to others, we're going to be reading from 1 John. So join me there in chapter 1. The first four verses. John tells us what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us, which we have seen and heard, and which we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ." And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Let's pray together. Father, our joy is incomplete until we express it in praise to you and in proclamation to others. So I thank you for the precious gift of eternal life given to us by Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us. And how through sending him to live sinlessly, to die sacrificially, to be raised victoriously, to ascend and reign eternally, you have given us the precious gift of life and we proclaim that this morning. Bless now our gathering. Bless the teaching of your word through song that we have already experienced, through the proclamation that we are about to experience. And as we issue the invitation to come and worship and adore him, I pray that all will do so. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.
Test one, two. There we go. All right. Can y'all hear me? No? Yes, I'm getting some of both. Maybe I'm spotting the hard of hearing folks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How about now? How about now? All right. All right. Very good. I am so glad to be with you. The children just encouraged me today, and I'm going to take an opportunity this morning to do with them, I do with you what I do with them during Vacation Bible School when we are uh, studying missions together. And so we're going to look at our VBS Mission Center, kind of a reflection on what we did with the children in July, a little bit different. But I wanted to do that because this is our season of missions in the church where we particularly focus on the work of international missions, getting the gospel abroad. And what we did this past year is we focused on India. Now, in a moment, I'll tell you why India was an important focus for us. But let's roll on into why we do missions and jump into our outline here. Why do we do missions first? And Steve shared these with you a few weeks ago because God deserves to be worshipped by everyone. So we're going to roll forward to that because God deserves to be worshipped by everyone. One of the things that we often lack in our impulse toward missions is to understand that the end goal of everything that the church does is to bring about true worship of God, because that's where everything's heading in heaven. When you get all of the glorious pictures of heaven in the Bible, you get pictures of worship. All through the book of the Revelation, when things go on, people are falling down, worshiping God. And the elders, sort of as a picture of all of us before the throne, are constantly falling down and worshiping God. The reason that missions exists is because worship doesn't. Our goal is to bring people into the kind of process of disciple-making where they are brought to faith in Christ, but they're brought to worship God. That's the end goal of missions. And it's because God deserves to be worshipped by everyone. If you want to get into a really good discussion, find a couple of folks whose teams are headed toward the national championship right now. Get together some Georgia folks, some Alabama folks, some Clemson folks, some Oklahoma folks. Get those folks together and watch what happens if you disrespect anybody that's on the other person's team. People get really upset. And I mean flamingly upset. Crazily upset. Because they believe in in their team and their quarterback and the people that are there, it's so much that if you disrespect one, they'll get angry because they think that their person, their team, deserves to be honored. Well, so much more so than something as silly and frivolous as football is the glory and deserving of God to be worshipped by everyone. Every. 
He is worthy of it. He deserves it. It is the end goal toward which all things are working. Second, letter B, because Jesus commanded us to go and tell. It's very simple. Why are we doing missions? Jesus gave it to us in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen through 20. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is Jesus' commission. He tells the apostles in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the Holy Spirit shall be fall upon them and empower them. We've been studying that in Sunday school. And they shall be His witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Third, because we love people and want to share our joy with them. Look back at First John there. Listen to what they're saying. They said, We've seen Jesus. That's what John is saying in verses 1 and 2 and 3. We've seen him. We're proclaiming it to you. But here's the deal. Verse 4, we do this. We write it. We tell you. We proclaim it because we want to share our joy with you. So our joy would be complete. Haven't you ever been doing something and wanted to call somebody in to participate in your joy? Um, I am not a good person to watch a football game with. Okay. In fact, my family won't typically watch football games with me if I have any interest in the teams that are playing. Because I am like a, an ongoing sports commentator the whole time. But not the fun kind. Okay. And so I will get really involved and one of the most common things that I end up saying to somebody along the way is, did you see that? Look! And my family does not like that. Anybody else do that? And then when somebody breaks open and they're running, I'm up trying to run with them. Go, go, go! I'm just whatever it is, I'm in there because I am so excited about it, I think everybody else ought to be excited about it. I want you to participate in my joy. I watched Steve Mears recruit a group of youth to his team during a college football game. And Steve was so excited, he brought, was it five jerseys? Seven jerseys of his football team. And I watched him proselyte from among other football teams to where seven of the youth were wearing, I'm so sorry about this, Mississippi State jerseys by the end of the night. And Steve was so happy about it, man. He was walking around, he was about to pop a button like he's having babies. It's just really awesome. We like people to share in our joy. Listen, if Jesus really is your joy, you'll want people to know it. That's what we're doing. We love people. We want them to share our joy with us. We want to share our joy with them. And letter D, because without Jesus, we are all sheep without a shepherd. We have that wonderful passage in Matthew, and Jesus is looking out on the crowd It says that he looked at the crowd, they were downcast and they were depressed. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now listen carefully. When Jesus calls you sheep, he is not complimenting you. Are you aware of that? He's not complimenting you. There are three reasons he's not complimenting you. Number one, sheep are dumb. In the animal kingdom, 
in the IQ level, they're just not up there. They're not. They're dumb. They are by nature very unsmart animals. They will get themselves in trouble instantly. And when Jesus says they don't have a shepherd, what he's saying is they're dumb and they're going to get themselves in danger. Second thing about sheep is that sheep are distractible. Crazy thing about sheep, they're like the ADD of the animal kingdom. All right, that anything flashy, shiny, moving. I know about this because that's me. If we would have had a definition called ADD back in the 60s, I would have been the poster child. Okay, you come to staff meeting with me, it's just kind of crazy sometimes. I'm all over the map. And so I have to, and between Steve and I especially, both, we really have to have Richard or Wendy or Sean keep us on task because we'll just go out there. Well, sheep see something shining off in the distance. They will simply walk toward it no matter what is between them and the object they see. If there's a cliff, you know all those pictures of Jesus leaning over the cliff rescuing a sheep? It's not because they're the smartest animals out there. It's because they got distracted by something in the distance and they walked off that cliff. They did. That's why they have Jesus. He's got that crook. You've seen the picture I'm talking about? He's reaching over and he's got the, 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 the sheep in his crook of his staff and he's pulling them up. That's not because that animal is going to make Einstein's top ten. Okay? It's because he's dumb and he's distractible. But there's a third reason that Jesus is talking about us being in trouble when we don't have a shepherd is we're defenseless. Sheep, by nature, have almost no defenses. In fact, a fully wooled sheep, if you give him a good bump, he will fall over and he will be like that old commercial. He'll say, I've fallen and what? I can't get up. And it's like he exposes the softest part of himself to the wolf because he's just laying He's defenseless. So when Jesus says people are like sheep without a shepherd, he's not complimenting us, but he's having compassion on us because he knows we're not very smart. We will make very dumb errors, sins, mistakes, foolish things. He also knows that we're easily distracted from what is important and vital and good and true and that we are terribly defenseless when it comes to the enemy who seeks to devour us. And so Jesus cares about us like A shepherd cares for his sheep. He calls himself the good shepherd. Well, when we talk about missions, we have to ask the question, how big is the task? How big is this task? It's huge. We need to get a number. There are seven, get it, billion, six hundred million people on earth. I can't, I can't get my mind around that. Can y'all? I don't have like a, a way to figure those big numbers. In fact, if you get your iPhone out and you keep it in portrait mode, it won't even let you put that big of a number in. It stops at hundreds of millions. Around 3,160,000,000 are living in 6,992 unreached people groups. I'll talk to you about what that means. The people group is typically identified by culture, location, and ethnicity. Culture, location, and ethnicity. Often language is tied to that as well. So you could throw that as a fourth element of 
being a people group. It's a particular culture, typically a particular ethnicity or strain of an ethnicity, particular location, and then a language that goes along with that. Now, what we're saying here is nearly half the people on earth are unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a huge task. Of these groups, letter C, 3,080 of those people groups are unreached and unengaged. What's that mean? Well, it means that these people in these people groups are going to get up in the morning and go to bed at night, go through the course of their whole day, and they will never hear the name Jesus spoken, repeated to them, get it in writing, or have any way of connecting to even know who Jesus is. This is a horror. It's a sorrow. These people are what we call living in darkness. Uh, One of our old hymns says, groping in darkness, waiting for the light. Let me tell you a little bit about unreached. Unreached means there are not enough mature followers of Jesus among them to help others know Jesus. In other words, less than 2% of the entire population of that people group know Jesus or know anything about Jesus. That's the unreached. But the unengaged unreached, which is the UUPG group we mentioned second a minute ago, means that there are no known followers of Jesus among them and no known missionary work to teach them about Jesus. You had a, a, a precious group of children up here today. Our children, our grandchildren, is precious to us in a zillion ways. And you know what? They've all heard the name Jesus. They won't get up today without ever ever having heard. They won't go to bed tonight without ever having heard. They know. In fact, we got to hear them say, I know Jesus. In your home, you're celebrating Jesus. In Sunday school, we're teaching about Jesus. In worship, we're worshiping and learning about Jesus. We have so many accesses and avenues. We have Bibles. How many of you have more than ten Bibles in your house? Be honest. If you have more than ten Bibles, get your hand way up and let everybody see. Okay? I do. I don't even know how many Bibles I have, but ten's like a small number for me. I think about the fact if you had no access, no Bible, no knowledge, and you are sitting in complete darkness, and this is the sorrow that the unengaged people groups are in. Why should we be concerned about them? We just learned about it. Why should we be concerned about them? In 1 John it says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Also, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. What's he saying? He said, we want you to know the Lord. We want you to be saved, to have fellowship with God. God has loved us in such an incredible way that He has sought us in His Son. He has sent Jesus to come. You know that great verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him might have everlasting life. They may not perish. This is a glorious gospel message. But 
this huge slice of humanity knows nothing of Him. Yet we are so rich in the knowledge of Him and the resources of Him. At the end of Sunday school today, we were working on through the book of Acts, and we were down in chapter 4, and the Sanhedrin group is meeting about Peter and James and John and all the stuff that's going on with their proclamation of Jesus, the healing of the man. And you hear this word shared among them. And I want you to take this deep into your heart because I want to just share something vital with you. You hear this line, and here's the line. So that they may not spread any further this name. If you want to know what Satan's goal is with you, it's that verse. He simply wants you to let the gospel stop its progress in your heart. So that you become not a conduit by which the gospel comes through you to the nations... But you become like the Dead Sea. It just came to you and it stopped. Nothing goes out. It's just all input. It's input on Sunday. It's input during the week. It's input in small group. It's input in Bible study. It's input in quiet time. It's input in all those things. But there's no output. Satan's goal with you as a believer is simply for the gospel to find its stopping place in your mind, in your heart, in your life. And spread no further. Satan will do a, a zillion things. that He'll make you busy. He'll make you mad. He'll make you frustrated. He'll make you rich. He'll make you poor. He'll make you all these kind of things. Where God's allowing Satan to mess with you. So that you will trust God deeper, yet Satan's goal in the whole thing is not for you to trust Him deeper. It's just for you to shut down and pull back and let it all stop right there with you. And so, when we start talking about international missions, the crazy thing is, is that so many of us in Southern Baptist life have Become Dead Sea Christians. Where all of this resources and all of this knowledge and all of this opportunity comes to a dead standstill in our lives. Last year, the average Southern Baptist gave only $10 to international missions. Think about that. That's unbelievable. That was the thing that got us all together. We came together to do missions. That was the heartbeat of Southern Baptist life. Over the last several years, we had to make some drastic cuts to our international mission outreach because our giving as Southern Baptist in international missions was not growing, but it was waning. And so, there's this grave need. Well, how do we do missions? Let's roll there real quick and remind ourselves. Our kids are so good about this. We learned three little hand signals. The first one is this one. Kids, what is it? By praying. They know it. 
That's the first step in missions. Jesus said that the fields were white with harvest. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his field. Every one of us need to make a part of our daily, regular, weekly, monthly prayer focus. Praying for missionaries to go to the field. I'm so happy we're sending five missionaries out for Christmas. Five people in our church have chosen, young college students have chosen to spend Christmas away from their families. Two will be in Zimbabwe, two will be in Ecuador, one will be in China. They're giving up their holidays with their families, the traditions they've known, and here they're going to go to give the good news of Jesus Christ. And you've been so great to support them. But think of how big the need is. How huge the global need for the gospel is. So the first thing we need to be doing is praying. Second, this was, a, this was our, our motion. It was going. This was our little sign that we did among the kids. Going. We need to be going. We need to be a going people. We need to be going to our neighbors in our own neighborhoods. We need to be going to our communities. Great opportunity as we go out and share the good news through the gift, and we actually go into, on one day, 229 homes in our community. That's going. That's awesome. That needs to be a regular part of our lives, and we need to be going internationally where the need is so great. And then the last way we do missions is by giving. In your bulletin today, you received an envelope looks like this. It says, I am B at the top. When you give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, 100% of your gift goes directly to fund the missionaries and their mission. This is not administration. This is not stateside. 100%. And this makes up more than 50% of their whole annual budget. Just this one offering. And so I encourage you, do like me and my family are doing, pray, look at it, be sacrificial, take this envelope and give to the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, globally going to reach the nations for Christ. We give. That's part of what God has called us to. The Scripture is clear that one of the ministries of the church is to support those who go into missions. At the head of your outline today is a quote from Lottie Moon. I'll refer you to that quote. If you'll take a look on your outline, Lottie Moon says, One cannot help asking sadly, why is love of gold more potent than love of souls? That's, that's one to just freeze on right there. Why is love of gold more potent than love of souls? But then she gives an illustration. She says, the number of men mining and prospecting for gold in Shantung, which is where she was doing ministry in China, is more than double the number of men representing Southern Baptists. She sat there and she looked in Shantung at the at the gold mine. And she numbered the men who were working the gold mine. And there were more men working the gold mine in a small city that she was ministering to than all the number of men in Southern Baptist missions at that time. It was astonishing to her that more would be willing to 
work for something passing than for something eternal. And so, giving is a vital part of what we do. I want to take you for just a moment and give you a snapshot of one nation answering this question. India, why focus on India? Well, more than 1,345,000,000 people live in India. In other words, basically one of every six people on earth live in India. Now that's, that's hard for me to even fathom. One of every six people on earth live in India. That's mind-boggling. Of the 2,289 different people groups in India, remember culture, language, location, ethnicity, 2,071 of them are unreached. So India is an incredibly unreached nation. It represents a number of 1,253,000,000 unreached people in India. That's astonishing. It's staggering. More than a third of the unreached people on earth, in the, in the most of what we would call the least reached groups, live in this one country. We studied it this summer because of how vital it is to evangelism. Why focus on India? Well, India is a microcosm of the global need for missions. In other words, it's one small representation of the challenge of the whole globe. But it's not very small, but it is one place where you could kind of look at and say, this place makes us aware of the need of missions. When we look at India, we see first their diversity. India has this great number, 2,300 different people groups. I've got a dear friend from India who got married uh, the day after he met his wife in an arranged marriage. She was from the north where potatoes are the common dish. He was from the south where rice is the common dish. They married not speaking the same language, not growing up in the same culture, not eating the same food, and had to be moved in together with one of their parents who served as the interpreter between them for all of the language as they spent their first year learning the each other's language. They were that diverse. By the way, the pastor got to make the match in India. If you're going to get married and you're a Christian, the pastor gets to make the match. I could have some fun with that. I tell people sometimes when they're young, I say, man, y'all better hope India doesn't take over here because I'm in charge if they do. All right, and I'm, I'm doing the matchmaking here. Well, it's so diverse that people get married and they don't even speak the same language. They have no commonality in food or custom. It's unbelievable how diverse the country is. India also has a division. Ethnically, it is divided. 
socioeconomically, it is divided. If you can succeed in ministry in India, you can do ministry anywhere in the world. And not only is there this division, India is going through the same development as a country that the entire world's going through. It's called globalization. Globalization is now how everybody's connecting, but they're all moving towards the cities, not away from them. So that the urbanization is going to be the great new place that we do ministry. In the United States, in the short history of our nation, the 200 years, what we've done is moved our churches away from the cities. City starts growing, it starts changing, the crime may come, population shift, churches actually move out of town. The new need, my brothers and sisters, is for churches to move back to town to reach these vast numbers of people. And I'm going to show you those numbers in just a second. Fourth is danger. With globalization and urbanization, there comes a whole new danger. Culture clash, conflict, ethnic conflict, racial conflict, cultural conflict, um, all kinds of social strata conflict. India has it, and it's dangerous to be there. It's dangerous to speak the gospel in communities that are predominantly Hindu or predominantly Buddhist or predominantly Islamic because there is such a repercussion for the proclamation of the gospel. It's very dangerous to take this ministry into the streets of India and to carry it out. It's also India suffers from what so much of the world suffers from is distance. Distance from centers of evangelical gospel preaching Christianity. There are not a lot of centers near India or in India that are very prolific in being gospel-centered places of Christian worldview and culture. There are some, and they're growing, but the distance is an issue and makes it harder for missions to go on there. But there's also destiny, and that's kind of the thing I want to bring you toward a close with, is the destiny of the people of India. I don't know if you're thinking through all of this unreachedness, but every one of these people who dies without Christ goes to hell. When you start moving your numbers into the billions, it's really hard to imagine. Their destiny, apart from salvation, which is found in Jesus Christ alone, is a destiny separated from God for all of eternity. This is part of the impetus to missions. Not just that God deserves this worship, not just that Jesus told us to go, but there's this underlying thing is that they're, they're sheep without a shepherd. And there's only one thing that can happen to sheep without a shepherd. The enemy is going to get them. They're going to perish and they're going to hell. There has to be this weight, this burden that rests upon the church to think this through. Let me tell you quickly about the gateway to India and part of the strategy and why you should give to the International Mission Board. The strategy is built around Mumbai. Used to call it Bombay. It's a city of about 18 million people. In that city, there are representatives of every single unreached people group in India. Think about that. 
That's how culturally diverse Mumbai is. Every single unreached people group in India is represented in this one city and it is predicted to swell to 28 million people within the next two years. Think about that. 10 million more people moving there over a three-year period. These statistics came out at the end of 2016. So now, going into these years, this population is growing. The people are coming there. They're looking for work. I got a call the other day. I know you get these calls also. I got a call. Uh, somebody wanted to, from Microsoft, wanted to work on my computer. Have they called you yet? I'm always glad when Microsoft takes a personal interest in me in Pineville, Louisiana, and tries to reach out. And of course, it's a scam. But God's been convicting me lately about how to deal with that. So I get a man on the line and I just simply asked him, I said, do you think God is pleased with trying to deceive me? He broke down. This guy's sitting in India. He breaks down. He said, there is no other hope for me to feed my family but this job. So next time somebody calls you from India and you want to bow up, share the gospel. I shared with him how Jesus loves him. I shared with him how God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for his sins to pay for all he's ever done wrong and what he was actually doing wrong to save him and his family. And this man literally just breaks We don't know who's on the end of the line when we're talking. We don't know how broken people are and what's going on and how God is appointing us. But you and I have this wonderfully giant, undoable, in our own strength task, and that is the gospel has to reach the nations. The Bible says that in the book of the Revelation, that representatives from every tongue and tribe and nation are going to be there worshiping the King, worshiping the Lamb. You and I have an incredible responsibility in bringing that about as a people. We have to look, three quick pictures here. The glory of India in Mumbai there. The next picture, the slums outside of Mumbai. And then a great picture of the gate between the two. The left is the hovels and the poverty. The right are the wealthy and a wall separates them. But the gospel has to get to both groups. India is a great picture of the task that we have as Southern Baptists. And what I want to do is I want to enlist you personally. First, by inviting you to the Jesus that we need to proclaim. It is very possible that you are a member of a Southern Baptist church, an attender of a Southern Baptist church, a visitor of a Southern Baptist church, and even with your family maybe being Christian or friends, you come in here today and you have never personally received Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you're just now beginning to get an 
understanding of God's love for you and the fact that He sent Jesus, God in the flesh, to live and dwell among us, to be Emmanuel, to love on us and to give His life as a sacrifice for our sins. That Jesus, in His love, died on the cross for our sins. And He was buried and He was raised on the third day. And we proclaim Him to you for the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. But you must repent. You must turn away from your own way and follow Jesus, putting your faith in Him personally. If you are a Christian, we're inviting you to the mission God has assigned us to. To do three things regularly. To pray. That maybe even as we finish our service today, that one of the things we'll all do together today is say, God, send missionaries, and maybe even be like Isaiah and say, and here I am, send me. And that we would go. We would be willing. Wherever he sent us, maybe it starts with a person you shop with, or the cashier, or the waitress, or waiter, or your next door neighbor. That we would go to everyone in our path, starting in our own home, and then working out to the nations. And we would be willing, whether it's local or international, to go and to share the gospel. And that we would give, you know... I think we got this whole Jesus birthday party thing upside down. I really do. Because most of the time we spend more on ourselves than on the person who we're celebrating the party for. And wouldn't it be a bummer if you went to your birthday party and everybody gave gifts to each other and they just gave you some measly leftover after what they had given everybody else? If it's his birthday... And if we're going to celebrate it, how about we give him the biggest gift? Is that okay to ask? Am I unreasonable with that? Let's give him the biggest gift. Let's this year say, bigger than all that we're getting, whatever we're doing for Christmas, we're giving to Jesus. And a great way to give to Jesus is to give to his cause in international missions and give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering to make sure missionaries go and tell from India to the whole world the work of Christ. Would you bow with me? Father, it is always a glory to talk about you and your mission to the nations. Because in so doing, you want people saved, delivered from darkness and hell, and brought into light and life. And so I pray today... I just stand before you and I pray, make us like this, Lord. Make us a praying, going, giving people. And let us care about those who are perishing. When we sing, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. Let us live that. Pour your Holy Spirit upon us today. Draw men and women and boys and girls to Jesus that they may hear in this house be saved and send us as prayers going and giving that you may be glorified and that peoples may be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you stand as God's working in your heart? Would you come?